0: Thank you.
1: Hello again, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine. And I'm here today to go over some flashcards around uh, pharmacology. Uh, I've gotten some good feedback from our students that they're enjoying the drugs, probably even a little more than the bugs. But, well, I enjoy the bugs more than the drugs. So we're even. So first case is a 31-year-old woman who presents to the emergency department with unilateral vision loss and right arm weakness. And did I say these are pharmacology cards? So we're thinking drugs here, not bugs. So she presents with unilateral vision loss and right arm weakness. She's only 31. A neurological exam confirms that the patient has loss of vision in her left eye as well as Two out of five strength for arm flexion on the right. When you ask the patient to stand with her eyes closed, she quickly loses her balance and falls to the right. So just to pause there for one second, you know, when you're getting these very brief exams, obviously this is a neurology case. They're focusing you on some focal signs. And you've got areas, multiple areas that sound like they're involved here, her motor, her balance, which of course would be posterior, like cerebellum to be specific perhaps. And then she's also got ocular symptoms as well with the fact that uh, she has loss of vision in her left eye. All right. So you're thinking multiple areas of involvement in her central nervous system. When you ask, oops, sorry, you already talked about the fact that she falls to the right. So you're concerned for demyelinating disease and so you obtain a brain mri which shows several hyper intense plaques in the periventricular area you discuss the findings with the patient and tell her that in addition to potentially needing long-term medication to prevent disease progression she will need acute treatment to decrease the inflammation in her central nervous system So what, first of all, what disease are you thinking she has? And if you're thinking multiple sclerosis, that would be correct. It used to be that um, you had to have uh, things separated in time and space. So like a flare and then another flare three or six or 12 months later. But the thinking has uh, come around on that and If it looks like and acts like multiple sclerosis on the first episode, you can certainly raise that specter. So this is not an unreasonable jump here. So what drug would you potentially start on this patient? Well, you'd start uh, some sort of corticosteroids, and the corticosteroids that you could use would include prednisone, hydrocortisone, cortisone, prednisolone, methylprednisolone, And then there's other steroids for other diseases like betamethasone and dexamethasone as well, decadron. So um, this class of drugs mimics, mimics the actions of endogenous glucocorticoids. Such actions include vasoconstriction, induction of apoptosis of lymphocytes. Remember apoptosis, great term, means kind of causes these poor lymphocytes to die and explode. The stimulation of hepatic gluconeogenesis is also an effect of these glucocorticoids uh, and protein catabolism, as well as the inhibition of prostaglandin and leukotriene formation through inhibition of phospholipase A2 and the stimulation of gastric acid and pepsin production. Gosh, if you were able to remember all those things that I just listed, you'd be golden during your third year of clerkships because those are the basis for a lot of the side effects as well as the benefits of giving patients uh, glucocorticoids for various diseases. Clinical uses, so feel free to play me back again if you can stand listening to my voice. Clinical uses glucocorticoids are used in the treatment of adrenocortical in, <laughs> insufficiency, allergic reactions, collagen vascular disorders such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and polymyositis, inflammatory bowel disease, ITP arthritis, multiple sclerosis, which we're talking here perhaps asthma, nephrotic syndrome, and spinal cord compression. Other uses include the diagnosis of Cushing syndrome, stimulation of fetal lung maturity, treatment of leukemia and lymphoma, which are part of the chemotherapeutic regimen. They're never just given alone, of course, uh, and immunosuppression in organ transplants. So... Amazing drug, amazing number of side effects, however. So let's just address a few of those side effects. Symptoms of, because you, you will get asked about this on the steps. There's just no way around it. So no glucocorticoids. We use them all the time in medicine. It's insane. Symptoms of Cushing syndrome. Uh, so side effects here. Sym- symptoms of Cushing syndrome osteoporosis, hypertension, psychosis, and irritability, increased susceptibility to infection, hyperglycemia, we see this all the time, fat redistribution, so-called buffalo hump, fat pad at the back of the neck, development of central obesity, moon faces, you know, that round face, characteristic edematous facial appearance, and then there's thinning of the skin with development of striae, impaired wound healing, peptic ulcer disease, peripheral muscle wasting, and edema. So man, for all the benefits, there's so many nasty side effects with this drug, and your patients will be happy to tell you about them for sure because they're not unnoticeable. Okay, so other drugs just to be aware of is uh, beclomethasone. That is is an inhaled glucocorticoid that is used to treat chronic asthma. And because the drug is inhaled and not administered systemically, side effects are minimal. They can get thrush is probably the biggest one, you know, oral candidiasis. Uh, although steroids are known to be anti-inflammatory, they may paradoxically cause an increase in the white blood count by decreasing leukocyte margination. Um, So that's something we see all the time, too, and you should be aware of it. So we frequently will look for another source of what's causing the leukocytosis, but then we blame it on the steroids. All right, so glucocorticoids, know that drug. Listen to that part of this podcast again if you need to got to get that stuff down. All right. Case two in pharmacology. A 52-year-old woman presents to your rheumatology clinic for follow-up of her systemic lupus erythematosus. The course of her illness has been complicated by the development of lupus nephritis, for which she has been on a few different immunosuppressive drugs. Laboratory studies today confirm continued hematuria and proteinuria with worsening renal function tests. You tell her that you have spoken with her nephrologist and that you would like to start her on another immunosuppressant medication to treat her condition. She asks how this medication works and you explain that it decreases lymphocyte proliferation by inhibiting inosine monophosphate dehydrogenase, which is an enzyme involved in purine synthesis come now, would you really explain to a patient that? I don't know, but at least maybe it would be in your brain while you were telling them something else. So what medication are we talking about here? That's right. We're talking about mycophenolate mofetil, which is metabolized to mycophenolic acid in the liver. It acts to inhibit inosine monophosphate dehydrogenase, an enzyme involved in GMP synthesis in the de novo pathway of purine synthesis. Without GMP, DNA synthesis within B and T cells is decreased, and hence cellular proliferation of B and T cells is also decreased. So the clinical uses, uh, you can use it as an immunosuppressant in transplant patients. That's probably where we see it used the most, by the way. It's also used to treat autoimmune disorders like psoriasis and lupus. Side effects, you get allergic reactions, hypertension, increased susceptibility to infection, especially cytomegalovirus infection, pancytopenia, and gastrointestinal upset. So know about mycophenolate mofetil. I see it used a lot in the patients that we take care of in the hospital who are transplant, or I should say post-transplant patients. It's a very useful and powerful immunosuppressant. All right. A 39-year-old woman presents to your clinic for a follow-up visit. She was seen in your office several months ago, at which time you diagnosed her with rheumatoid arthritis and started her on methotrexate to prevent long-term progression of disease. Today, the patient says that she has not tolerated the methotrexate well and has increasing dizziness and would like to try something different to manage the progression of her disease. After discussing options with the patient, you mutually agree upon an agent that reduces T-cell proliferation by inhibiting synthesis of pyrimidines. You warn her that she may experience some diarrhea as a common side effect. So what's this drug in this patient who has a rheumatologic autoimmune disease, and you're gonna give it to her, it reduces T-cell proliferation by inhibiting synthesis of pyrimidines. Well, that drug, is leflunamide. And I'm going to tell you at the outset, I haven't seen this one used so much in the patients that I'm seeing, but maybe that's a regional difference. Um, maybe they're doing so well on this drug they never get admitted to the hospital. But be that as it may, leflunomide reversibly inhibits the enzyme dihydroorotate dehydrogenase, which catalyzes the conversion of carbamoyl phosphate to orotic acid as part of the pyrimidine synthesis pathway. Inhibiting the production of pyrimidines has the most effect on rapidly dividing cells, including T-cells, which are in part responsible for the pathology seen in autoimmune disease. Shouldn't blame it all on the T-cells, of course. Clinical uses, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and immunosuppression in transplant patients. Side effects, diarrhea, which you warned this patient about, hypertension and transaminitis, better referred to as elevation of liver transaminases. Laflunamide also has activity against several viruses, including CMV, and is occasionally used to treat infection in transplant patients. It is thought that laflunamide inhibits varion formation and thus blocks viral propagation. So it's funny, the last drug we talked about was mycophenolate mofetil, which uh, can predispose to CMV infection. And here we have lifunamide, which can actually treat CMV infection. So kind of exciting. You got to love the immunosuppressives. They're such fascinating drugs. They really are. Next case, case four, a 34-year-old man presents to your clinic for follow-up of his hepatitis C, which was diagnosed six months ago. Since his diagnosis, he has continued to have intermittent right upper quadrant abdominal pain and has noticed yellowing of the whites of his eyes, a.k.a. I guess you'd call that jaundice. Physical examination reveals tender hepatomegaly as well as scleral icterus. Serum studies demonstrate elevated levels of liver enzymes as well as the continued presence of hepatitis C viral RNA. You inform the patient that he has chronic hepatitis C, and you tell him that one of his treatment options includes a medication that is also used to treat multiple sclerosis and certain types of cancer. What... Would this drug be, well, these are the interferons. And if you just say interferons, I'll accept that because there's interferon alpha, which is produced by leukocytes, interferon beta produced by fibroblasts. Maybe you can remember that by blasts, fibroblasts make interferon beta. There goes a dump truck past my house. Uh, Interferon gamma, which is produced by CD4 positive T cells. So interferons are usually produced in response to a viral infection. They have multiple actions designed to boost the immune system in response to viral infection, including increased expression of MHC molecules, increased activation of natural killer cells and CD8 positive T cells, increased ribonuclease activity, which acts as uh, to degrade viral mRNA, and inhibition of elongation factor two, which is part of protein synthesis machinery. So they do a lot of stuff. So clinical uses, interferon alpha, remember that was the one produced by our friends, the leukocytes, work for treatment of certain types of cancer, including Kaposi's sarcoma, melanoma, and hairy cell leukemia, and treatment of chronic hepatitis B and C, interferon beta, remember that was made by fibroblasts, treatment of multiple sclerosis uh, by reducing exacerbations, and interferon gamma, which is treatment of chronic granulomatous disease, AKA things like sarcoidosis. So side effects, fatigue, bone marrow suppression, flu-like symptoms after each administration of the medication, and they can, ironically enough, get hepatotoxicity. So if you've ever known anyone that's been on any of these interferons, particularly for treatment of hepatitis C, it is absolutely miserable. They describe themselves as feeling like they have the flu constantly. So good way to remember it. Um, Interferons are produced uh, in response to viral infection, and therefore they kind of make you feel like you have a viral infection. Final and fifth case scenario for you here, a 52-year-old man presents to your hepatology clinic. He has end-stage liver failure secondary to alcoholic cirrhosis. He's been sober for the last three years and is now being considered for liver transplant. He asks you about medications that he would have to take if he were to undergo a liver transplant. You begin to explain to him about possible immunosuppressive regimens, including a drug that acts by binding to FKBP12 and thereby decreasing IL-2 production through calcineurin inhibition. And of course, he'll be like, oh, yeah, FKBP12. I thought that that's probably how it worked. And um, I was uh, thinking about the IL-2 production and calcineurin inhibition. And he'd be like... Okay, I'm there. I need this liver, and I'm okay with it. What drug are we talking about? Well, again, uh, we talked about this, I think, in a previous episode, but calcineurin inhibitor, tacrolimus, is the drug that we're talking about. It binds to an intracellular protein, FKBP12. The tacrolimus FKBP complex acts to inhibit calcineurin, thereby resulting in the decreased production of IL-2. IL-2, or interleukin-2, production is decreased, and this results in the decreased proliferation, differentiation, and activation of T cells, thereby leading to the decreased production of other cytokines. So clinical uses, it's an immunosuppressant used in transplant patients. It may also be used in the treatment of Crohn's disease, um, and I've seen it used in autoimmune diseases as well, but really the main place is in transplant patients. Side effects, increased risk for infection, increased risk for lymphoma or skin malignancy, hyperglycemia, It. Ironically enough, can cause nephrotoxicity, which is sometimes hard to tease out in patients who have a kidney transplant, and you're not sure whether it's rejection or that they're getting too much tacrolimus and need something else. Neurotoxicity and hypertension. Again, those side effects are increased risk for infection, increased risk for lymphoma or skin malignancy, hyperglycemia, nephrotoxicity, neurotoxicity, and Hypertension. Oh, and one side effect they don't have there is they can also get gingival hyperplasia. And I think I mentioned in one of those previous podcasts, you can go to my name, Journal of General Internal Medicine Images, and uh, Paige Kendall, one of our former medical students, has an excellent publication of a patient we saw together who had had a renal transplant and had gingival hyperplasia. It's thought to be from the combination of tacrolimus and amlodipine, a calcium channel blocker. All right, what else should you know about tacrolimus? By the way, some people say tacrolimus. I have looked up the pronunciation, and it's supposed to be pronounced tacrolimus, but I'll accept tacrolimus if I'm working with you on the words. It's metabolized by cytochrome P450 or CYP3A4, if you want to get into the weeds on that. Serolimus is another medication used that is an immunosuppressant in kidney transplant patients. It's similar to tacrolimus. It also binds to FKB12. So that's FKBP12. However, instead of inhibiting calcineurin, the serolimus FKBP complex inhibits mTOR, That's capital T-O-R. A regulatory enzyme involved in cytokine-driven T-cell proliferation. By inhibiting mTOR, T-cell production and activation and subsequent cytokine creation is decreased. Side effects include increased susceptibility to infection, increased risk of lymphoma, hypertriglyceridemia, and hyperglycemia. Of note, unlike some other immunosuppressants, it is not... Nephrotoxic, which is kind of a thing I've seen the transplant nephrologists do where they um, patients got Tacrolimus nephrotoxicity and they'll actually switch them to serolimus um, because it's not nephrotoxic. So, since I'm in the garage here and you've heard cars going by maybe during this presentation, uh, this is where we have all of um, my kids' books from growing up, they are now growing up. One is um, 24 and one is 27. And amazingly enough, in this time of COVID, they still have their jobs, which has been a bit of a shock to my wife and I. But regardless, I have pulled a children's book out of the bookcase here in the garage because, you know, I love reading children's books or did when they were growing up. So I'm going to read you HipCat. Um, by Jonathan London this was one of my favorite books uh, to read to my daughter when she was younger and my son when we could occasionally get him to sit still so hip cat he was a hip cat a hep cat a cool cat living all alone in a riverside shack ooby-doo john the sax man scat man the cool cat man One day he said to himself, all I want to do is to make jazzy music. So he picked up his sax, what his friends called his axe, and tipped his beret and said, Scat, cat, go, cat, go. Hip, cat, daddy-o's got a horn to blow and that cat, scat. And unfortunately you can't see the pictures in this book, but they are quite um, artful. He hopped on the night train the faster than light train, and in no time he came to a city by a bay. It was a Bop Rebop city, a bongo, congo, roller, coaster, jazz in your bone city. Hip cat moseyed along, singing a song, swinging his sax. He slipped into Minnie's can-do on Fillmore and said, Sweet Minnie, I want to blow my horn. Big Max, the Manx cat, was reading poetry at the mic, stomping the floor to the rhythm of his words. And when he was through, our cat, Hero, with a horn to blow, blew. His sax bobbed and swung, screeched and skonked, purred and barked. The cats in the club said, Go, cat, go, and Hipcat wailed into that horn. He wailed his song of longing, his song of joy, his song of loneliness and looniness. And the crowd went crazy. The joint was jumping, toes tapping, and cats bopping, chairs dancing, and shadows hopping. Ooby-doo-ee, blah-ba-blah, blah, so-wa-be-bop, a-wham-bang, bing-bang, blam, shooby-wa-diddy, my cat is a kitty. Still tapping his toes and bobbing his head, Hip Cat stopped blowing and started ooby doing instead. His new fans loved him, and Minnie hugged him. He was a bad cat, a mad cat, a rad cat. But Minnie could only pay him with peanuts. Now he was a penniless Hip Cat daddy-o with a tale to tell and a tail to wail. He hit all the jazz joints in town looking for a gig that would pay the rent. He was getting tired of living in a tent. But the joints were owned by the top dogs. If cats wanted to make it, they couldn't fake it. He said, if dogs can run free, why not me? So Ooby-Doo played his sax under the bridges. He played in the fog and he played on the ridges. There's a painting of him playing in front of the Golden Gate Bridge here up in the Marin Headlands across from the city of San Francisco. He played all day and he played all night. He played for no pay, but he kept up the fight. But he had to eat and there was no money in sight, so he played his sacks at all the tourist traps. Tourists with cameras tossed coins in his cap, then he became a short order cook at the Doggy diner but he knew he could do something a whole lot finer one night he slipped back into minnie's can do minnie said ooby do, how do you do ooby doo said i'm feeling kind of blue minnie said sing it you can do Big Max and some minx cats and cats in minx were jamming on their axes, playing some licks. They said, who's that cat, the cat from the sticks? Then they remembered and shouted, ooby-doo, do what you do, let the cats out of the zoo. So he blew his horn, all bluesy and forlorn. Then he started singing better than ever, remembering the river where he was born ooby doo e blah 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 so wa bee bop a wham a bing bam blam shooby wa diddy my cat is a kitty ooby doo e blah Then Ooby-doo blew everybody away with his horn, and pretty soon word got around. Even the top dogs paid top dollar for Ooby-doo to wail at all the clubs. He played in the hungry eye, he played in the hungry you, he played in the purple onion, and when he was through, the crowds went hog wild. Now wherever he went, he went in style, he tore down his tent and paid the rent, he ate tall ice creams and paid all his bills. They called him a jazz magician, a great musician, and a poet of the blues. And when he rode the cable cars over the hills, his feet flew out in his shiny new shoes, Ooby Doo shouted, Do what you do to love to do, and do it well he was a hip cat daddy-o with a tale to tell. He told it with his music and his ooby doo wa diddy wa shooby wa day My cat is a kitty and we play all day. Even the fat cats and the river cats back home listened to his music on the radio. They called him one cool daddy-o. He was a hip cat, a hep cat, a cool cat, a mad, bad, rad cat. Oobie-doo-john, the sax man, scat man, the long, sleek Catman. the end boy if you can get this book it has the greatest illustrations by woodley hubbard and again it's written by jonathan london if you have kids nephews nieces or if you just love children's books as much as i do That's it for today. I'll see you next time, and I'm going to take you out of here with some jazz, of course. We have to have jazz, and why don't we see how we do with some Stan guts? (laughs)
0: I'm <laughs>